Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Nathan Kurz about his recent publication, Jewish Internationalism and Human Rights After the Holocaust, which came out just recently on Cambridge University Press. Nathan received a PhD from Yale, was a visiting fellow at Oxford, and he taught at Birkbeck College London for some time. Nathan, welcome to the channel. Why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Hi, Amber. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, so uh, I, I got a PhD uh, in history uh, and Jewish history at Yale. Uh, and then I taught at Birkbeck College for several years. Awesome. Um, I, you know, I like to start all of my interviews with this question because I'm always really curious about the intellectual process that goes into producing a book, uh, especially a book of this magnitude and scope. Would you mind telling us a little bit today about what led you to write Jewish Internationalism and Human Rights After the Holocaust? Of course, Amber. Uh, it's always a good question to ask. You know, it's sometimes the kind of stuff you wish authors would put in their introductions, but it's never actually there. So it's 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 fun to talk about. Um, so so this book began as a PhD dissertation at Yale, and at the time that I was there, I was surrounded by a number of very eminent international historians. Uh, among them, John Gaddis. Paul Kennedy, Adam Tooze. Um, and so I think from the beginning, I had always sort of been looking for connections between sort of international history writ large and Jewish history. Um, and then uh, two years in my PhD, uh, Sam Moyne published uh, his seminal book, The Last Utopia. I remember he came and spoke at the Yale Law School. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I read that book and sort of was like, well, there are a lot of Jews here. That's kind of interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had more than one person say to me, like, wow, human rights in the 1940s, it's filled with a lot of Jewish characters. Like, what do you make of that? Um, and I also, uh, my, my advisor, Jay Winter, was at the time writing a biography of um, a Nobel Prize winner and French jurist, René Cassin, who... Uh, was himself also Jewish. And uh, Jay let me read, I believe, um, an early draft of the chapter where he sort of outlines his Jewish career and life, which was in part as president of a longtime French Jewish organization called the Alliance Israelite Universelle, um, which he took over uh, in the middle of World War II. And I read that chapter and I thought it was pretty interesting, but I also thought that there was a bigger context that Jay sort of uh, hadn't really outlined. Like what Kassan was sort of part of this bigger universe of people and organizations and lawyers um, that were that, that knew each other and were in contact and sometimes competing. Um, and I sort of looked around and I was like, well, nobody, nobody's really got into that. Nobody, I mean, nobody. Uh, it sort of was sort of there for the taking, um, and I think in part it reflects um, something in, in in Jewish studies, which is that the 
um, archival records of a lot of the institutions and or the lawyers and uh, sort of many diplomats who worked for them um, are often used for communal history. So, uh, for instance, uh, you know, I have a chapter about North Africa, which we'll talk about later. And so uh, North African historians sometimes use these records when writing about the history of Jews in Libya or Jews in Morocco, uh, because sometimes these people went on visits to those countries and observed things. Um, of course, they had their own biases, and uh, these were not exactly you know neutral accounts or uh, of communal life. They were often very misinformed. But um, still, the, the fact that they had only been used in that way um, left quite a wide opening for me here. Um, so, you know, it, it, it did also obviously respond a lot to impulses that were coming from outside Jewish history, particularly, um, uh, at that time, the brand new, uh, history of human rights. Um, but I also think within Jewish history, I sort of wanted to challenge this axiom that, uh, is, is almost not thought about very much because it seems so obvious that the 1940s, particularly the uh, Holocaust and the creation of the state of Israel and maybe the rise of American Jewry after World War II um, was super transformative and nothing changed or everything, rather everything changed um, after the war. Uh, And so I tried to sort of draw out a lot of continuities uh, that somehow uh, uh, survive a lot of that transformation um, to sort of show that for some people who lived through it, it was very hard to make sense of um, and uh, old ways of thinking and, and doing uh, died hard. Thanks for that. And I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, Sam Moyne's work, because I think for a lot of us that work in human rights or in Jewish studies, this has been something that's been formative for a lot of us. So I want to move on a little bit to the kind of meat of your book. And there is quite a bit to delve into there that we can cover today. Uh, But I'm going to work kind of in a chronological way for the listeners out there. In the introduction, you identify two different trends of Jewish internationalism. I was wondering if you might share with listeners today a little bit about what those are and how the Holocaust itself influenced these phenomena. Sure, Amber. Um, So I sort of, along the lines of drawing out those continuities that I just mentioned, um, I I identify sort of two longtime competing, uh, although as I will explain shortly, uh, more integrating uh, sort of after the Holocaust strains of of Jewish internationalism, one, one I call liberal integrationism um, that dates back, say, to the middle of the 19th century um, that often involved Jews in uh, liberal democratic countries, uh, particularly uh, Britain and France, uh, and then a little bit later, the United States um, intervening in um semi-democratic or autocratic countries um, in the quote-unquote East. Um, There is uh, lots of hints of sort of latent 
liberal imperialism there. Um, but uh, the idea being uh, that Jews in Britain and France and the U.S. create uh, organizations um, or or repurpose existing organizations um, in order to intervene for Jews uh, in places where uh, their emancipation, their um, admission to full civil and political rights in various cases is, um, uh, there are obstacles to it. Um, And often what they do is they use the language of liberal imperialism um, to try and coax uh, liberal empires to intervene uh, on behalf of these Jews. But they also uh, try and shape international law um, to help Jews and other minorities in those kinds of situations. Um, uh, Often this story starts with uh, the Damascus Affair of, uh, of 1840, um, uh, and, and goes into the Ottoman Empire, and then uh, Russia, and then sort of ends uh, with World War I. Um, and World War I is sort of a transformative moment. Um, uh, for those of you who have read um, Erez Manella's uh, first book on the Wilsonian moment, um, I think that sort of captures a little bit of the kinds of winds that uh, influence this world and a sort of st- second strain uh, sort of begins to take shape in the Jewish world around that time, although, you know, it had been developing for maybe two decades before that, which is um, a Zionist internationalism. And here I do want to credit <clears throat> my colleague, Jim Leffler, who has um, written extensively about this in um, some articles and uh, to some extent in, in a book he published Um so this is not something I'm coining, but uh, very much borrowing and uh, and advancing with my own with my own thoughts. But um, you have sort of a second strain uh, of Zionist internationalists, which sounds a bit paradoxical, uh, but uh, they sort of rest on the triad of um, going for uh, Jewish self determination in Palestine. Um, collective rights for Jews in Eastern Europe and uh, let's call it uh, civil and political individual rights in um, other uh, more Western or possibly democratizing countries. Um, Of course, a lot of this comes to a head at the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 about which uh, mountains have been written. Um, And Sort of after that, with the promise uh, uh, of what comes to be the League of Nations and a whole system that the League of Nations creates to provide international supervision of minority of minorities in uh, new or enlarged states in Central and Eastern Europe in the interwar period, that sort of becomes a uh, focus for the Zionist internationalists who really become far more prominent uh, in this universe than the liberal integrationists um, after World War I, uh, in part because the United States is not sort of actively involved in the international order. They are, not, uh, they are not formally part of the League of Nations. Britain and France kind of have their own um, uh, issues and agendas that prevent them or uh, hamper them from being the kind of champions of these 
minority rights that the Jewish activists who live there would have liked them to be. Um, and so it's these this sort of network of uh, often Eastern European-born Jews living in Central and Western Europe um, who sort of uh, lobby behind the scenes and actively uh, uh, publicly for uh, minority rights, essentially before they are um, taken over by the Nazis. Uh, and uh, the whole logic is sort of turned upside down as the German Empire expands after 1933. One of the things that you, you mentioned there was the Wilsonian moment. And one of the, I guess, great successes of that um, that later became not so successful was the minorities clauses. You address in your book the ways in which various Jewish groups attempted to kind of salvage some of these minority protections in the wake of World War II and the ways that they kind of pivoted uh, to address this. Would you mind sharing that with listeners today? Yes, Amber, of course. Um, so uh, sort of in, in, in the broadest strokes, I think I can safely say that um, uh, Jewish life in, in places that are not uh, uh, the liberal democratic West, particularly the United States, um, often have very groupist elements to it. Uh, uh, and uh, Jewish culture is lived and experienced not uh, individually, but collectively. Um, so certainly uh, in Central Eastern Europe, maybe in parts of uh, North Africa and the Middle East as well. Um, and so this whole idea uh, of having the, this kind of protections of, available to Jews um, was something that had really um, catalyzed a whole generation of Jewish activists uh, starting around the Wilsonian moment. And, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, uh, their whole logic gets inverted by the Nazis, by uh, the population transfers uh, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe um, during uh, and after World War II and the Holocaust. And, of course, the Holocaust itself um, and so the whole idea falls very much out of favor uh, in uh, the international arena. Um, and so people like Mark Mazower sort of assumed that Jews went along with this trend. Um, and what I found through a very sort of careful uh, examination of uh, various statements that these uh, different actors made um, sort of during and after World War II is that they really wanted to keep this, even as the world was moving towards uh, uh, wanting to protect individuals as individuals and not groups because um, groups could be, uh, you know, talked about in uh, terms of race and uh, easier to move around. And, uh, you know, you, you can read all about the, the, the detailed ways in which this gets really... Uh, uh, discredited uh, in the chapter. Um, but, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, like they were doing everything that they could um, sort of behind the scenes. And then when the new United Nations is created to try and create different legal instruments, um, however hopeless, um, that would still have some degree of protection for, uh, for groups. 
Um, and basically, uh, you know, this, like many other uh, chapters, unfortunately, in this book is a, is a history of failure um, and uh, uh, desperation. Um, but, you know, to the point that I tried to make earlier, this is one of the sort of continuities, surprising continuities that I wanted to sort of draw out for, for readers um, that just because all of the stuff we we take for granted happened doesn't mean that um, what people experienced at the time, uh, they understood the same way. They, they uh, really wanted to keep something that everyone else wanted to get rid of. Um, and so they tried to, uh, you know, get specific legal instruments drafted. They tried to get group protections in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, they tried to beef up this subcommission that was created that was really a way to sort of shunter away these concerns in a sort of meaningless commission at the United Nations. And um, none of it really went anywhere. Um, but just showing that it that this uh, these attempts were made at all uh, was pretty interesting. So we've talked a little bit about the ways in which um, Jews attempted to preserve group protections and failed. But they did move forward with this kind of internationalism to a certain extent. So I'm wondering if you might be willing to discuss with us today a little bit about how the development of international human rights as a framework and as legislation and the memory of the Holocaust are connected. So um, I really do think there's a lot more work that is that is left to be done um, on this topic. Um and really, uh, my second chapter tries to challenge the sort of axiomatic assumption that they are very interrelated. Um, I mean, on, on one hand, I would say for many of these uh, Jewish actors, um, human rights was just a new name for something they had already been doing. Um, and, you know, one of the big points of, of the book that I hope uh, uh, resonates with people is that, um, you know, I, I don't think that this is a particularly Jewish story in of itself, but that lots of people, when they um, deal with this sort of uh, template, uh, very sort of abstract language and practices, um, they graft onto it all sorts of prior concerns. Um, and, uh, you know, right or wrong like that is uh that's how it's understood even probably today um and so uh uh thinking that um uh, there is this sort of like neutral apolitical um uh, language that exists out there that people use to make claims uh sort of um hides a lot of the the politics and the agendas and frankly, like the lived experiences of, of people who, who use them. So, so I, I sort of want to begin by saying that, but, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot I could say here and I, and I, and I think, um, you know, readers will need to, uh, uh, dig into the details in the book, but, um, in, in short, what I, what I, what I will say is that, um, I just didn't see a lot of evidence that the people, for instance, who drafted the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights were really thinking about the Holocaust. And what I tried to show is that some of these Jews who, particularly the Zionist internationalists, 
um, some people associated with an organization called the World Jewish Congress, um, went specifically to some of these framers during some of these drafting sessions and specifically talked about the Holocaust in public and private, and they weren't listened to. Not only were they not listened to, um, their uh, invocations of the Holocaust were edited out of the actual records that we use. Um, so I compared uh, verbatim statements that, that I had uh, found in the archives with how they appeared in the sort of more sanitized, bureaucratic UN documents and found stunningly that things like six million and massacre of Jews, uh, that kind of language was airbrushed out. So I think that tells you something about the bureaucratic culture at the UN at the time. Um, but that also, you know, just going, you know, basically off what we know about the rise of Holocaust memory, um, while there were probably some, uh, uh, you know, individual elite jurists at this time uh, who had real direct knowledge and understanding of the Holocaust, it was not a sort of widely understood phenomenon and didn't become so until the 1960s. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's where there's a lot more work to be done, which is where did this link between human rights and the Holocaust actually come from? Um, I think Kassa maybe was the first to sort of try to popularize this, but I don't think that this really um, became cemented in popular consciousness until much later, maybe the 80s or the 90s. I suspect the 90s. Um, and uh, I've said uh, that there is... Uh, really good work to be done by a cultural historian uh, to sort of lay these two things out together in a much more systematic way and, and figure out how they became entwined. But, but I argue it was certainly not in the 1940s. One of the other things that of course occurred in the 1940s was the creation of the state of Israel. And you, I think, uh, in some of the best parts of your text, address how the creation of the state of Israel, particularly the state's absorption, absorption of a sizable Palestinian population, influenced both global human rights discourses and developments and discourses about human rights within Jewish communities. I'm wondering if you might be able to share just a little bit of that with listeners today. So this was not something I really went into uh, my research thinking too much about. Um, perhaps uh, uh, regretfully so. Um, uh, but uh, of course, as I, uh, I look back, how could I not have asked the question uh, of how this um, major issue um, impacted uh, activists who were uh, in large part at the same time, um, ad advocating for international human rights for everyone and uh, the creation and co consolidation of a Jewish state for Jews that, um, of course, had some um, exclusionary uh, uh, components uh, and, you know, like the creation of many nation states uh, involved the dispossession of a native population. Um, so... Uh, you know, more specifically, like I don't, I actually don't think it had a huge immediate impact on global human rights. Um, you know, I think we know that, for instance, one of the uh, articles in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights about the right to leave and return to a country um, 
was watered down by Arab states in the process because they didn't want to create a responsibility for themselves to have to absorb the Palestinian refugees. Um, but, um, you know, I think Dirk Moses and others have written very persuasively about this. Like, you know, at the time that there's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and also the Genocide Convention, there is massive uh, interstate uh, violence uh, being committed, uh, sometimes in the names of human rights and humanitarianism, all of these very lofty words. Um, and so, uh, you know, it sort of revealed what a gap there was between the aspirational nature of these documents and the legal instruments that uh, were supposed to uh, come after them and what was actually happening on the ground around the world. Um, of course, this presented a particular dilemma for uh, these uh, Jewish activists, um, the Zionists who were much more sort of ideologically uh, fervorous about protecting Israel's um, position and the liberal integrationists, people like Kassin or someone named Jacob Blaustein, a, a very wealthy oil magnate who is the head of a group called the American Jewish Committee. Um, they were not committed ideologues, but um, in time, let's say by the 1950s, became very fierce defenders of Israel, um, let's say out of a more pragmatic uh, position. And so they faced serious problems, um, um, agonies, when um, stories about um, violence that Israel was committing against um Border incursionists uh, in the 1950s would come out. Um, surprisingly, I really didn't find very much discussion of the Palestinian refugee problem as it was occurring. Um, I think there was a lot of unknowns. Um, I, I, you know, I should also point out, um, uh, although Palestinians themselves referred to themselves as Palestinians at that time, um, at least many in the West uh, had a very difficult time uh, for a long time, uh, distinguishing between Palestinians and Arabs. Um, uh, you know, if you want to go there, you can say it's a reflection of Orientalism um, or ignorance or whatever. Um, but uh, certainly a lack of knowledge and or understanding of what was going on. And frankly, uh, uh, the role of Israel in shaping public knowledge about this as well. Um, I think kind of made it a little more hidden from sight than it might otherwise have been. Um, although I'm still waiting to see, um, you know, the definitive account of someone really going through the press at the time and saying this is what was in Western newspapers, because I looked very hard for that. I didn't find it in any of the literature. Um, but uh, look, this, uh, this created agonizing dilemmas for people who suddenly realized they were advocating for international norms and laws that would apply to their state that they favored. Um, they, they couldn't selectively apply it like they had minority rights. This now applied everywhere. And so one thing I found, the, the, the legal innovation that some of these people were the most attached to was the right of petition. Um, so uh, you are your human rights are being violated by a government, uh, by your own government, uh, you are trapped. 
these activists would like would have liked you to be able to submit a petition to the UN and for the UN to say, okay, there are human rights violations going on in country X. We will do something about it. We will send people, uh, we will send our military or some kind of inspectors or whatever. Um, of course, like that, that didn't happen. Uh, and that was blocked in, in, in large part due to um, Cold War and colonial anxieties by some of the great powers. But um, more to the point, uh, what I found is even for some of these people who, uh, for whom this cause was sort of near and dear to their hearts, they kind of pulled back on it a little bit and were a little more circumspect advancing this because of how they recognized it might boomerang against Israel and uh, Palestinians or Palestinian sympathizers could then use this to bring Israel's human rights record into the public eye, at least theoretically. Um, so this uh, this was very unexpected. I mean, for these people, uh, you know, they didn't necessarily see uh, Zionism as a form of colonialism. And, you know, we'll come back to that point later. But um, they expected Israel to be a model state. Um, you know, you can call that uh, perhaps um, naive um, or wishful thinking, but that's how they saw it. And so this was really devastating to them. Um, and I think it's important that readers go in with an open mind um, reading the text that way, um, because that the, the novelty of that um, sense of betrayal is very key to understanding their mentality. How did North African Jews factor into all of these developments that we've been discussing so far? It's a sort of unusual pivot I make uh, in the fourth chapter. Chapter, excuse me, to uh, to move on to North African Jews, um, and uh, you know I think in part it's it was uh, inspired by a desire to sort of push back against this uh, assumption. Let's say I don't know in collective consciousness and historiography that like there was one Jewish human rights issue after World War II, and that was regarding the Jews who lived in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and, I, you know, I was kind of stunned to see the frequent juxtaposition that um, the people I studied made between Jews in the Soviet Union and Jews in uh, North Africa, particularly Morocco, Tunisia, uh, and Libya, less Algeria. Um, you know, and, and I'm obviously talking at a very high level here. So these are very different political systems, very different lived experiences. Um, uh, and, you know, when you label anything a human rights issue, um, it uh, risks really oversimplifying very complex local dynamics. Um, and I think that's probably true even today. Um, uh, you know, I think people who have studied uh, the rise of Amnesty International have, have shown that, uh, you know, they sort of often obscured what was going on uh, locally by using this sort of broad um, systematic language to describe um, uh, torture or other forms of abuse. So I, I do sort of want to caution, caution that and be a little bit self-reflective there. But, um, you know, there was a very large Jewish population in these states um, that were kind of in a very liminal position uh, 
at, particularly as um, the French and to some extent the, the Italian uh, American British empires receded um, from this part of the world. Um, you had very divided uh, Jewish communities. Um, often the Zionist factions of those communities um, spoke the loudest um, and spoke the loudest to Jewish internationalists. And so what they heard often was that Jews, you know, in Morocco fear for their life. They uh, want to leave. They are being mistreated by these uh, anti-Semitic states. And so we have to get them out of there. Of course, the reality is much more uh, nuanced than that. Uh, and, you know, for instance, in both Morocco and Tunisia, when they become independent in 1956, um, you know, there's no catastrophe. Uh, half the Jews in both of those places um, still remain. And we're talking, uh, I believe it's like a million and a half uh, or close to a million uh, Jews in those three states combined. Um, but there's, you know, there are also Zionist uh, agents from the Israeli government working sort of secretly to help Jews immigrate at that time. And so basically what I what I found to be a very interesting uh, uh, dichotomy at play was you had these these Jewish activists coming in just like they had been doing for 150 years, um, intervening uh, to try and make sure that Jews in these these um, uh, new uh, post-colonial states would have equal rights with uh, Muslims, uh, often in Muslim, uh, you know, Muslim majority, uh, Muslim states. But then at the same time, also advocating for them to have the right to leave often, not exclusively, but often uh, a cover for uh, helping to legitimate or uh, open up the possibility of their immigration to Israel. Um, and basically, when all the, the chips are down um, and the cards are on the table, I'm mixing metaphors here, um, what you find is um, even the most... Uh, strident of the liberal integrationists um, are, are, are really kind of um, probably not super self-consciously um, acting with Zionist impulses. That is to say that they really favor the right for Jews to leave over the right for Jews to stay and be integrated into these new societies. Um, and uh, so there's some interesting conversations that go on behind closed doors. Uh, particularly between uh, members of the World Jewish Congress and, say, um, members of uh, the Moroccan political parties about, um, you know, well, if, uh, if, if, if you let some Jews leave and you let these Jews stay, like, we'll actually help uh, you with the United States government and help you with loans. And so uh, you actually find some of this human rights language kind of gets dropped um, as some of these uh, kind of old school negotiations occur and you find some of these Jewish activists actually playing on anti-Semitic stereotypes, um, which I think is something uh, that I found somewhat recurrently and I think is something that uh, scholars of these kinds of um, fields ought to be attuned to 
That is, how did the sort of subject populations take these latent prejudices and try and use them to their advantage? Um, uh, in the end, uh, you know, a lot of these places don't have large Jewish populations anymore. A lot of them trickle out um, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, uh, but I guess one of the points that I make in the chapter is a lot of this interventionism, while obviously very well-meaning, actually made it harder for a lot of these Jews to stay. Um, and, you know, I think that's a sort of broader uh, point that that I, I want to make is that um, sometimes, um, you know, very self-styled human rights activists um, have well-meaning intentions, but they uh, can make local situations much more difficult than they otherwise might be. In some of the latter chapters, I was really drawn to your analysis of the phenomenon in which Zionism is equated with racism. Um, this kind of transition from anti-Semitism to anti-Zionism. I was wondering if you would share with readers a little bit about how this equation was historically constituted and how it has been used and abused over time. So um, I'll I'll speak to it in the way that I can uh, because uh, I think it deserves a lot more careful treatment um, by someone who is extremely multilingual uh, and knows um, the history of the global left in a really deep way, um, because this is much less about um, the people that I studied than the people that they encountered um, and the way that those um, elites uh, understood uh, Zionism. Um in, in the sort of very narrow way in which I looked at this phenomenon, um, you know, this is something that uh, basically the uh, uh, Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union to some extent, um, uh, Arabs to Arab statesmen to some extent, and some uh, third worldist global South. Um, intellectuals and um, politicians um, all kind of put out there. Um, And, you know, in part, uh, and I trace this to some extent when I sort of give the broader context of how um, an international law that was supposed to be made against sort of outlawing anti-Semitism as a result of a, a, a set of particular circumstances involving a bunch of swastikas being painted across the world in 1960 that actually had to do with um, a rogue KGB operation. I, sorry, I shouldn't say rogue, but a, a KGB operation sort of taking on a life of its own. Um, so a vo- sort of very specific set of circumstances ended up uh, within the confines of the United Nations um, becoming a an opportunity for the Soviet Union in particular to advance uh, the notion that Zionism is a form of racism and colonialism. So in outlining that very particular process, which was um, sort of very specifically about international human rights, you know, at the UN in the 1960s, I do to some extent lay out this, this broader context of transformations and, um, in the international arena and particularly the rise of the global South 
um, and post-colonial understandings of self-determination. Um, there is obviously an enormous amount of literature about whether or not Zionism should uh, objectively be considered um, part of um, uh, settler colonialism. Um, uh, I won't enter that that very fraught debate here. Um, I will only say that um, it was very stunning for the people that I studied to see this um, unfurl in the way that they did. It obviously has um, enormous uh, presentist uh, connotations. Um, I would say that that one difference uh, is that today you see um, defenders of Israel sort of reflexively equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And I think, um, you know, in the, in the second full decade of Israel's existence, that uh, formula had certainly not yet um, taken shape as a form of uh, defending Israel's uh, reputation internationally. So that was not something that um, the people I studied sort of engaged with to, to a large extent. Um, but they, they were absolutely stunned to uh, see uh, Zionism uh, put alongside South African apartheid. Now, this, uh, uh, this equation or... Uh, uh, um, putting on parallel tracks, uh, obviously intensified uh, in the 70s and the 80s, particularly as Israel and South Africa actually developed some relationships. Um, there are several good books you can read about that if that is uh, interesting to you. Um, uh, but, you know, in this very narrow sense, like this, this 1965 uh, invocation at the United Nations was one of the first times uh, internationally that this uh, formula gets made. And look, it sets, it sets a precedent that um, uh, I think some people who uh, really do not have, uh, let's say, Israel's best interests at heart um, use and abuse. Um, I think other people who uh, really believe, uh, um, you know, uh, there could be a just solution to the Israeli-Palestinian-Arab conflict um, draw on it in order to criticize Israeli behavior. Um, we could probably take up a whole podcast with how to untangle this. Um, but I will just say that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fraught, it's a very fraught uh, issue. And it's one that the... Um, Jewish internationalists that I studied that are part of the organized Jewish world today still really struggle with how to deal with in a constructive way. Certainly, it is a profoundly complicated, I think, question. Uh, most, most of the listeners here know that I work primarily on Ukrainian and Soviet topics, which is the reason um, that I asked that question. And I think I'm going to ask the next one. The Soviet Union is well known for having to have purported to be a state that was anti-anti-Semitic. However, in the 1950s and 60s, they had policies that were, for lack of better words, anti-Semitic. Um, but they started to cloak that in um, anti-Zionism, as I think you address really well 
in your book. And this culminated in this kind of global international movement um, that many have dubbed the Free Soviet Jewry Movement or the Refusenik Movement. I'm wondering if you can tell us uh, a little bit about how conceptions of Jewishness and Jewish human rights and human rights on their own informed or coalesced the free during the Free Soviet Jewry Movement. So I really address a sort of formative period of this movement. That is to say, uh, primarily the 1950s and 1960s. Um, I think the movement takes on a completely different character in the 70s and the 80s. And the elite uh, jurists and diplomats and uh, functionaries that I write about are really kind of bit players uh, in a very global, very popular, uh, populist, uh, popularizing sort of citizen-led movement, particularly from within the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, and the intervention that I make is just to point out that um, for a lot of these elites, and including the Israeli government, they were very hesitant to actually make this, to make a link between Soviet Jews and human rights Um, for a variety of reasons. um, uh, To some extent, I focus on the figure of Nahum Goldman, the longtime leader of the World Jewish Congress, who is um, mostly known for helping to negotiate the uh, agreement between, well, rather among uh, Israel, world Jewry, and Germany, to um, regarding the uh, claims and indemnification from uh, Germany uh, and sort of righting those some of those past wrongs financially and and, and otherwise, um, and he sort of becomes a totem pole kind of polarizing figure for the Soviet Jewry movements. Uh, I, I use that very specifically because I I think uh, you know painting the movement as with one broad brush sort of obscures a lot of um, internal uh, dynamics that uh, get covered up in some of our heroic narratives. But basically, Nahum Goldman says, uh, the Soviet Union is not anti-Semitic. We shouldn't call it anti-Semitic. Now, uh, whether or not he actually believes that or not is uh, another question. But um, he thinks about everything as a negotiation. And so he says... The Soviets aren't going to do anything positive if we just malign them publicly, which is not exactly how you're used to uh, human rights defenders uh, dealing with uh, rogue regimes um, in the public sphere, which I think to some extent shows how much Goldman was not a human rights defender and also probably shows how how the infrastructure of global human rights that we sort of take for granted today was not really in place um, at, at his time. Um, but I was interested to, sh- to show how actively um, he and others went to not link Soviet Jews to human rights, specifically chose to avoid it. Um, uh, you know, in Israel's case, there, there were certain real, real politique reasons for that. Um, in part, if you are talking about human rights, then... Uh, you have the right to immigrate anywhere, not just Israel. 
And uh, there were, of course, demographic reasons that Israel wanted to absorb as many Soviet Jews as they could. Um, and, uh, you know, also questions uh, about how this language could be co-opted by the Cold War or the Cold Warriors, um, which in some parts, you know, in some ways is, is really part of the story, particularly about what happens in the United States. Um, but even when you look at um, Soviet Jews or um, uh, non-Jewish Soviet uh, dissidents, um, often you'll find they would appeal to the Soviet Union's own laws uh, and constitution uh, as much as they would uh, international human rights. So these are just some sort of uh, corrections I thought needed to be made. Uh, in how we understood how this movement or set of movements rather um, uh, came together. And, and I should add that um, really uh, only as human rights becomes a global sort of protest language in the mid to late 1970s is when you see the linkage of Soviet Jewry and human rights really take off. And so that sort of was a very... Uh, neat and tidy overlap with Sam Moyne's thesis that um, was fairly obvious, but had not been stated yet. And I thought, you know, that needed to be laid out with, with some evidence for some readers. Thank you. Um, I think we've, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today, Nathan. I want to personally thank you for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you, Amber. Really, really happy to be here and hope listeners enjoyed and we'll uh, we'll pick up the book. Indeed. And for the listeners out there, if today's discussion piqued your interest, you can pick up a copy of Nathan Kurz's Jewish Internationalism in Human Rights After the Holocaust directly from Cambridge University Press, or you can order it from your local bookstore.